Hello, I'm David Mosscrop. Welcome to Open to Debate, brought to you by Interact. We're coming to you this week uh, seven days late. Took a little delayed post-election break, but uh, we're excited to be back. And yet, this is our last episode until the new year, so after today, we'll be taking a little holiday break, and we'll join you again in January on the 14th. Canada's 43rd Parliament is in session. The speech from the throne has been delivered. Justin Trudeau remains Prime Minister, but the dynamics in the House of Commons are likely to change now that the country has a minority government. From 2015 until the fall election, the Liberals had a majority in the House of Commons and a relatively stable Senate. Now, they have fewer than half of the seats in the House, and they'll need to work with opposition parties to pass legislation. They also face a Senate that is undergoing unpredictable transformations with its shifting caucuses and allegiances. So, given all of this, what should we expect from Canada's 43rd Parliament? Today, my guest is Tonda McCharles, senior reporter with the Toronto Star in Ottawa, and we'll discuss the policies and politics of the months to come. Let's start with a fundamental question. Is this parliament going to be effective at producing good legislation? <laughs> Hi, David. Thanks for having me. Um, is it going to be effective? Uh, well, I think that we've got to wait and see what happens. Um, you know, our first big indication was that throne speech. So, uh, we can try to take the measure of the throne speech. It sets out some broad guidelines of where they want to go. It gives us a little bit of the sense of the tone with which they're approaching uh, their job yeah. with the other parties. They sent out some signals to the other parties, and they sent signals to the public. But really, uh, the rubber hits the road when they actually start tabling legislation, cobbling together projects that will work, uh, appeal to the other side, uh, to which party to get support. They need 13 other MPs in this commons to move anything forward. Those 13 can come from a whole bunch of places. Uh, the throne speech immediately got support from the Bloc Québécois of all yeah. people. All the other federalist parties have said, no, not good enough. So we'll see. Yeah, I found the throne speech interesting, and we'll talk about that quite a bit. Plenty of signals about Canadians sent us a message. They want us to work together. First of all, it's not really how elections work. We don't really send messages. We can talk well, I about disagree about, with that, but... Oh, good. Okay, go sure, ahead. Let's chase that down. For sure people send messages. It's not just a popularity contest. Oh, no, I agree with that. I'm saying is, is that, so the, the, the idea that Canadians en masse have sent the government a message that they want them mm -hmm. to work with other parties, to me, right. sounds ridiculous because how, how can you how can you abstract that message from the fact that 338 ridings voted for different reasons so I agree that there was a message sent yeah. about what people want less so that that message was we want you to work with other parties fair. I suspect if you asked partisan voters what they wanted they would have wanted their team to win full stop fair but but I agree with you otherwise but what I found interesting was th but then the agenda that was laid out looked an awful lot like the last four years uh to Plus a gun certain violence. extent, to a certain extent, it looks a lot, but there's an emphasis that's different now. Uh, and I think that, at least from the Liberals' point of view, they took the message from the electorate that, given that 
nearly two-thirds of Canadians voted for parties that support more aggressive climate action, mm -hmm. that that's their big emphasis now. So the last time around, you know, when Justin Trudeau surprised the country, came from third to first and defeated Stephen Harper, he had placed that, you know, it, it's it's come to be a slogan. Uh, climate change came in, but I think it was like rather third or something. Um, this time, climate change is front and centre. Yes, the first piece of legislation they're going to table is around tax cuts, mostly for the middle class, and now they've changed it to me to say, and those who need it most, the tax cut, um, signaling that it's going to be progressive, it won't go to the benefit of the wealthy, uh, just as previously they had tailored all their tax measures not to benefit the, the wealthy, but to benefit lower and middle income families. Um, but this time around, they've really really plugged climate change. So I think that is a that is a difference. Um, and also the, the the nod to the divisions in the country. The last time round, you heard Justin Trudeau talk all about diversity is our strength, inclusiveness, unity, we're united, we're all one great big happy family. Yesterday you saw him say, yeah, maybe not so much, yeah. right? Like you saw him say, uh, this is, we are a country that has regional divisions, those were laid bare by the election, they, their concerns in different regions of the country, without naming the regions, yes. <laughs> and without r naming the exact concerns, except to call them economic, uh, he, he, he pointed to that. And I think that's a big change, and that's going to be a big governing principle that whatever they do, because Freeland, Christy Freeland is in charge of those files yeah. now, let's call them the national unity files, the intergovernmental national unity domestic files, that's going to be a big focus. So that is a big shift. So, but let's, let's chase down, well, the, the regional divisions alongside the economic concerns and climate concerns. Uh, climate change is going to be central, no doubt. On the other hand, that's going to put pressure on regional divisions in the West, for instance, get a pipeline built, uh, and perhaps other energy projects as well. So it's not just Trans Mountain, it could be other energy projects. Uh, you know, we had a tanker ban that was disliked by a lot in the business community and in the West. We had a new regulatory approval process that was disliked. So on the one hand, we're going to have to manage these files. On the other hand, we're going to have to manage uh, climate policy. And yet we have Jonathan Wilkinson, who's the Minister of Environment and Climate Change, who is seen by some to be a bit of a sacrifice to the business community. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if the rhetoric... Sacrifice or representative. I mean, Represent comes, Sure, yeah. sure, sure. That's he, what I mean. He, yeah. That's what, well, yes, right. So he comes from the clean tech sector. So, yeah. you know, the, 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 on the one hand, that's viewed by the, by the business community as a positive sign. He, he brings sort of to the game uh, a willingness or a desire to boost that sector, to, 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 to juice the green tech innovation that's going but on. But is that the message that uh, we'll innovate ourselves out of climate catastrophe instead of doing things like, you know, not building a pipeline or, it's a big part or of ending the fossil fuel subsidies? Yeah, no, it is a big part of the message. Actually, um, other than the fact that they appointed Christia Freeland, who, yes, is was born and raised in yes, Alberta, right. but has, you know, the global Rolodex and the Toronto, New York, whatever sort of uh, contact circle. Um, putting Wilkinson from the clean tech sector and Seamus O'Regan from an oil producing province in charge of those files is the signal. I think that they've decided um, to, you, do you remember when Trudeau got into all that trouble because he talked about phasing out the oil sands? Um, yeah. Okay, so now what you're hearing 
is them talk about transition and industry and transition. And so, yes, I think a big part of their message, at least the way I read the signals, is uh, that Canada is going to invest deeply in, for example, uh, more carbon scrubbing, more carbon capture, uh, more more green tech in terms of either solar, wind, etc. Uh, yes, they're going to focus big time on that. And they've talked about help for the workers in the sector, in the oil and gas sector, without actually saying oil and gas, yeah. <laughs> but workers in the troubled energy sector and and hope help and hope for them. Uh, is that only going to come by way of um, EI program changes? My bet is it's going to come big time by way of uh, skills retraining and development and investment into the various technologies that are underway. And and. By the way, actually, you know, many of the big companies are a bit ahead of the public in this, right? Yes. They have priced in changes. They've priced in carbon pricing to their product, but also they're investing deeply in this kind of technology. I find fascinating is in responsible smart companies are often ahead of the public and ahead of governments because they're very good at long-term planning. I mean, mm-hmm. they have entire divisions whose job it is to forecast and to risk manage and to plan. Uh, you see this with insurance companies and climate change. Insurance companies are leading on climate in many ways because they realize that in the long run, they can't underwrite certain policies or exist in a world in which climate change is rampant. Uh, so so I agree with you entirely. Uh, I, I think that's going to be a tough... Uh, it's going to be a tough tension to manage because it's possible that there is no good solution to manage the economic concerns of Alberta and the energy and trading nature of the country with the climate goals that we want. I mean, we, we, have a, we, we believe that it must be possible, but of course, you, we've all played solitaire. There are some games of solitaire that you've lost before you've dealt the first card. Well, like, I, I think it's true it is going to be tough, um, but I don't think there's another option. And yes. I, think that, I think that a large uh, part of the battle to win public opinion um, has already been fought and to a certain extent won in many parts of the country. Um, there's yeah. no question when we saw literally millions of people, kids in streets across Canada during that election campaign, mobilizing behind the, you know, the, the young Swedish activist Greta Thunberg, that, that you know, there is a generation behind sort of many of the politicians in the House of Commons that is already that has already bought into the arguments. Oh, yes. And, you know, the carbon tax is an interesting study in this. You know, to me, it was astounding how quickly a consensus, a pro-carbon tax consensus formed in this country. Uh, It's not universal, but there's large support for it. Well, and and think back to the 2008 election when Stephen Dion was arguing exactly for that. A price on carbon, he called his policy the green shift. It was demonized by Stephen Harper and the Conservatives as, you know, a tax on everything. And that line has stuck stuck with uh, the policy and has still animated a lot of the conservative base. But I, as I say, I think I think a lot of the public has kind of been persuaded by the scientific evidence, the efforts by the UN and the international community, even by countries like China, to tackle their emissions. China's doing amazing work on electrifying their public transit system, on solar panels. I traveled, I did a, a train trip uh, from eastern to central China last year, and for 1,200 kilometers, every step of the way in every village, on every little hut and every house, everywhere along that way were solar panels. It was incredible. It was a massive, massive investment in solar energy in that country. So look, and I've been going to China for years, and every time I go, 
the air in the cities is actually cleaner. Yeah. I'm, well, because the alternative stunned. is they burn coal, right? That's right. Yeah. And diesel. And, and they've and they've electrified their, their bus fleets in many of the largest cities. And so, uh, I mean, I think I think that the the carb the pricing of carbon is something where Canadians are are already at that is astonishing that's an evolution, but I think that people also recognize that we are in a transition phase. It's not an overnight, and you're right. It is going to be big time tough, tough for everybody, yeah. tough for the conservatives point, as well. At some point, the government's going to have to say, "Look, this is going to be painful." Right? I mean, what 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 struck me as interesting is. The way that we've talked You're about it, such a downer. I am a downer. Nobody well, wants to hear that. Nobody wants to hear that. I, I agree. <laughs> no, nobody wants to hear that, and, and and nobody wants to think that the middle class should pay more taxes. But this is why I'm a heretic, and why. Well, this is why I'm on, on this side of a microphone, not running for office or elected. Um, but um, we don't. We never say this is going to be tough, and you have to sacrifice. We say we can grow the economy and save the planet. We say, we can do this together. We say, we're going to have a carbon tax and you're going to get something back. We never say, look, we've been living off of uh, an ecological credit card and now we've got to pay yeah. back the principal. But those are hard things to tell people. Yeah. They're hard. Those are hard things to tell a teenager, you know, sure. act this way and you'll, you'll be better for yeah. it. Get to bed early and you'll have a better morning yeah. tomorrow. Especially a generation who's not really at fault for having done it. Because you're paying the bills of your grandchildren. Yeah, yeah. But look, I think that, uh, and, and you raise a good point about it being painful and that's not the message. I mean, even the government had an opportunity to talk about their carbon rebate program. In other words, um, you know, yes, there's going to be a tax on carbon, but if you use other alternatives, if you bike to work, you take public transit, you don't gas up your car as much, at the end of the day, at the end of the year, you're going to have more money in your pocket because yeah. we're going to give money back to you for it. And rewarding good behavior, providing an incentive for people to use less carbon. Well, that is not a story you heard told no. by anyone. It's not a, it's not a, 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 not a lesson so much, but it's not a, nobody gave Canadians an instruction manual on how this was going to work, if I could call it that. Nobody said, here's how it's going to work. Instead, what they did was they talked about, uh, you know, we have to price carbon, we have to price pollution, we have to price pollution. And those talking points did not get understood by people when all they heard is there's going to be more taxes yeah. because the conservatives put, pushed that message. So, yeah, telling people it's going to be painful is necessary, but I... But you also can just explain your what you're doing. Oh yes, I. You I, can show, yeah. not tell, and they they do a lot of telling as opposed to showing. Yeah, for being the deliverology people, uh, the communication has not always been great. But I could talk about that all let's, day. Let's and yet, go on. Yes. And yet, pharmacare. So pharma care was a big part of the election. It was featured heavily in the in the lead up to the election. Mm -hmm. Uh, it was featured a little bit in the throne speech yesterday, not as much yeah. as I had hoped or uh, hoping against hope expected. We get steps towards, quote unquote, pharma. Yeah. So the NDP has said one of their uh, hostage demands, <laughs> one, of, one of their requests, one of their priorities, to reframe it positively for my social Democrat friends, uh, is pharma. And I'm good on them. It would be, it would be the one that I would choose. Um, the throne speech didn't seem to present a very ambitious vision of pharmacare. We got quote unquote steps towards. Mm -hmm. I think back to the Pearson era, which I didn't, I wasn't around for. Neither was I. But uh, no, no one, no one. But uh, but but Medicare was was a hell of a fight, but it got done, you know, comparatively quickly. We seem to be dilly dallying on pharmacare for quite a long time. So what, what do you think steps towards is going to look like? Well. 
interesting. I mean, even in the election campaign, we didn't hear the government fully embrace what their own appointed task force recommended, right? Um, you know, the government appointed uh, Eric Hoskins, who was the former Ontario health minister, to look at this. And he had experts and he consulted widely and he knows this file inside out. And he came up with a pretty thorough roadmap for them, right? He said, you know, you've got to uh, essentially develop a list of prescription drugs to deliver. Um, uh, they should produce that that list by in a couple of years, within a couple of years, by 2022, and then be expanded by 27. He said, you've got to go into it all in, single payer, universal, publicly funded. And at no point did the government fully embrace that. And in the, the election campaign, the money that they were willing to put toward it was a pot of $6 billion over four years. And to be split among a bunch of priorities, not just pharmacare, but mental health services, a long-term care. And so right away, I think you could have wondered where they were going to go with it. I think that's still an open question. Um, I'm not sure if they've been able to grapple with the different provinces and their positions on it. I think that's going to be a huge fight, and I think that's why you've seen... because. Actually, this week, I, uh, after the premiers met in Toronto, and we heard Brian Pallister of Manitoba say, don't go near Pharmacare if you can't take care of Medicare, and you're not taking care of Medicare because they haven't provided adequate transfers, adequate money to the provinces to cover our increased costs, costs every year and the costs of an aging population all across the country. So you had, on the one hand, these one message coming from a couple of provinces saying, hey, well, we need more money. All of the provinces were united on, we need more money for basic health care, yeah. let alone pharmacare. Chris, your feelings in charge of that hot button file now. And so I think that the reason we didn't see a really ambitious statement about what they would do and what they were prepared to do and spend on it is because that's a, a that's going to be decided at a negotiating table with the provinces and the provinces will have a big say. Quebec wants no part of it because they've no. already got their own plan. They want the ability to opt out of it and get the federal money because they've already got their own plan and that should subsidize their own plan. I've and, heard you this know. song played before. Yeah. So, so that's why I think, I mean, I can. that's why I assume you didn't see much of a, an explanation of how they're going to go about pharmacare. I think that it's really going to be the subject of tense negotiations at the Fed. You think the concern table. is, I mean, money obviously is always a concern, but do you think riling up the provinces is an equal concern? Not so much riling up the provinces, but maybe setting expectations too high, for one, um, among the Canadian public and the opposition parties for what can be achieved. I think, in fact, not having details in there is a way of leaving the table open at the right. FedProv table. Right. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I, I've underthought about the, the intergovernmental side of this. It's huge. Yeah. that's and, and, and so after that premier's conference this week, I sent a note to both the health minister's office and the finance minister's office. Okay, what is your response to, because they you've actually the, the federal government has had the provincial demand for a 5.2 increase in transfer payments for health since July. Mm -hmm. They have been pushing that for months now, nearly six months, right? And so they ought to have a response. And I also asked uh, 
more generally um, about uh, oh, there's another aspect that fell squarely in Mr. Minister Morneau's uh, lap. I can't remember now. It doesn't even matter. But the point being, I sent the messages, the request to both those ministers' office. I never, I got an answer back from Christy Freeland's office. Oh. You can quote Minister Freeland on this. Da, 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 da. So they're already centralizing those files through her. She's already in on all those meetings. She's got a leading hand on them. Should we be talking about the health care accord? Is that what we should really be talking about? Uh, you know, a la Martin Well, uh, you know, the provinces would love us to talk about that. Yeah. That would be a good um, way to perhaps manage some of these divisions. But the thing is, the health care accord, let, let's not forget, when that was first struck in 2004, um, I think it was 2004, uh, under Paul Martin, um, Paul uh, Stephen Harper immediately embraced it as an opposition leader. Uh, it was a 10-year health accord. When it came up for renegotiation, Stephen Harper said, we're all in for all of that, except you're, we're going to put a ceiling on your increase. That's where this 3% a year is yeah. all you get. But that already is over and above inflation, let's admit. Um, and so the liberals, when they came in, they embraced that. They embraced that 3%. They kept it at that level. Uh I don't know that talking about a health accord is where the discussion will go. I think the, it still comes down to money. Yeah. Well, because it strikes me we still have problems. I mean, the, the throne speech indicated that there'll be some help for mental health. Yeah. And that's, that's fantastic. We still have wait time problems, and we still have family doctor problems, and we still certainly have problems in the north with, with adequate care. It seems like 10 years after the health care accords, we're dealing with the same problems. And presumably they're only going to get worse because of an aging population. Mm-hmm. It strikes me that aging population that lives longer, that has better drugs, that keeps it and we'll be alive dealing with longer. climate change, including the the respiratory illnesses mm -hmm, that come with mm -hmm. climate change, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. This is why I'm a down. No, there's no <laughs> questions. There, there's no question. There are huge pressures on the system, and I think that the the liberal government, because they've had actually very capable health ministers all along the way, and they recognize the pressures. Which may be another reason why you've seen perhaps a scaling down of their ambition on pharmacare. Yeah. Not sure. Yeah. It, these, this, you know, I, I'm all in on pharmacare, but these are things that I, th I think anyone who supports pharmacare ought to consider, including myself. So I'll give myself some post-episode homework <laughs> as I go into the holiday season. Uh, okay, well, how about this? Indigenous politics. I mean, I, mm -hmm. you know, I would say if there, there were a number of, of, of themes in the throne speech. Yeah. About tax cuts, pharma, climate... Uh, gun violence, yeah, uh, which which is important, but it, it seems like it was given an outsized uh, attention, perhaps. And really? well, I mean, yeah, it I, was I, a key promise in yeah. urban areas. Um, <clears throat> well, that's what I think. I think strategically, Montreal, that's why. Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver—that was a big promise yeah. for them. Uh, there were rallies in Surrey around gun violence in this campaign. There were uh, from the parties. I mean, this was driven by the Liberals. Yeah. 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 Fair enough. Yeah. But still, I think that you can't avoid the on the ground reality for a lot of urban centers and gun violence. Oh yes, no, no. I mean, I agree, and it, it has. So it's to a it's a winner for the liberals. It is a winner. No, I, do, I strategically it makes a lot of sense, and from a policy perspective, it no, no doubt needs to be tackled. I just think for them, it is it was given an outsized role for strategic reasons more than substantive ones. But I would never, not to be cynical, obviously, <laughs> uh, it's not in my nature. Um, but on on the indigenous file, I mean, I was listening closely. There, the uh, the speech spent a lot of time on it, mm -hmm. which is good. We can't spend too much time on on it. Mm -hmm. uh, short on specifics. 
I'm curious what. Well, the, short on specifics, except to the extent that they, you know, I could, I, I would say they were short on specifics on what they're going to do for the energy sector, and 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 how they're going to tackle farmer care. But sure. on on reconciliation, they listed a whole bunch, and I'm just looking at my phone here to call up some of the stuff that they that they said they were going to do. And, it was and the they, greatest hits. It was the list, yeah. Yeah. So I didn't see any real new action in there. No. Um, they have said before that they would implement the United Nations uh, Declaration on Rights of Indigenous People. Um, they said that they would do it, but now they're saying they'll do it in the first year of the new mandate. So, uh, first, oh, right, okay. Right? Well, and although, and, and, and they've hard... also said that they would address, now they, we've heard them before say that they would deal with the all the recommendations of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. They haven't said they would deal with all the recommendations yeah. of the murdered and missing Aboriginal women and girls inquiry, and that's news. But which ones? We don't know. Yeah. Um, and... And, you know, look, we've, we've heard them say that they would uh, develop the legislation on health and welfare for Indigenous people. It's interesting. I thought that they would have actually extended an olive branch to the NDP insofar as dropping the judicial yes. review yes. of the child welfare order from the Human Rights Tribunal. And maybe I everybody knows what that is, but the Human Rights Tribunal has made successive orders to the federal government to uh, make equal the funding that the federal government provides for both health, indigenous health, education, and welfare systems, uh, make them equal with the non-indigenous systems. And uh, in so far as the welfare thing goes, that's the piece that's on, not yet done. And now the federal government is challenging it because depending on how that order, the compensation order, is carried out, it could run billions and billions of dollars. Um, the government insists it wants to pay fair and uh, you know meaningful compensation to those who were affected, and yet they continue to challenge the order itself on some points of law. Um, the line was, we want to do it, but we don't think the courts are the best vehicle. Mm -hmm. yeah, <laughs> Which I find perplexing, for one, because it's expensive to fight these things in the courts. Not if you have and Justice and Department lawyers. They're on salary anyway. Yeah, that's true. Although it does, it's it does take the court expensive, but it is expensive. Up, right? it, it, there's and, a, and there's, the there's a personal side. and a political cost, yeah. I would say, that outweighs perhaps the financial cost. Um, and so for the government, you know, the NDP has ask them to do, you know, that they made that one of their first demands. Drop that judicial review. Let's get on with the compensation. In fact, they could still examine how to do fair compensation um, and and not carry out the, the, the legal arguments. But look, the, the legal arguments are a bit complex. Um, and I think that mostly people are looking for them to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. So to me, you know, in the throne speech, that that line that, you know, we're going to do it, but they didn't say we're going to drop the, the court case. That That's problematic for them. It could have been an easier uh, olive branch to extend yeah. to the NDP. Also, if the if the amount that they ultimately pay is less than what was ordered, then it's, it's going to be hard to look at it and say it wasn't about the money. I don't know if it'll ever be less. Uh, the thing is... Um, the, the, as I understand it, the order is to compensate all the children and the families and the guardians who were affected by actions of the, the non-Indigenous welfare system. In other words, when kids were pulled out and put in foster care in non-Aboriginal homes and, and lost contact with families and guardians lost contact with their, with their kids, um, you know, and grandparents as well, and et cetera, et cetera, that... As I understand it, you know, part of the question is, so what if someone was just, uh, you know, 
taken away for a day or a month versus someone who spent years in the system? And then how, how do you fairly compensate that person, that individual child, that those parents, those grandparents, or do you, you know, or do you, if someone was out of the system or in the system, in the foster system for a, a short period versus a long, do you compensate everyone around them? In other words, do you do 360 compensation? Do you t- compensate the children, mm-hmm. the, the, the parents, the siblings, the whole, the, the grandparents, the guardians, etc.? cetera? Uh, how do you address those? Are all harms equal? Are, are all harms um, uh, received and felt equally? You know, this is the, the the sort of the whole approach about how do you deal with compensation fairly is 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 is, an, is actually a question that comes up often in other contexts yeah. as well, right? Harassment cases, abuse cases. So, I think either way, look, it's it is going to cost billions. Um, it's it's how much is one is one question, but also importantly, the government argues that you know the human rights tribunal order doesn't cover a bunch of people. A lot of people who were who fall outside the parameters of the dates that order was dealing with. Yeah. So I take them at their word um, when they say that they want to uh, give justice and fairness to these kids and these families. But let's see why why can't they move on it? Why can't they act? Why can't why aren't the people the advocates like Cindy Blackstock um, seeing action that tells them that there's good faith there? For me, that raises a big question. She's the North Star for me. I, 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 she has yeah. gone through hell and back yeah. over uh, years and years um, arguing and advocating for uh, Indigenous children and families to get what they deserve. She was uh, put under surveillance by the authorities, by federal authorities who you know, suspected her, her own good faith. Um, so, you know, she, there's nothing in this for her other than seeing those families yeah. helped. So. Yeah. They, uh, fr- frankly, it's, you know, not to oversimplify things. They should just do whatever she thinks they should do. Let, <laughs> well, let her decide. I don't Quite think frankly, they could do that. That's, no, let's, I know. No, I, they can't do that. And I no know. one wants, everybody wants it to be fair and equal. But, uh, you know, I guess that's in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. So somewhere down the road, we're going to do an episode on this. But I, I just think the, the, the sort of state and institutional lens on Indigenous politics is so tainted that they just can't even see right. But that's a whole, that we'll, we'll tackle that uh, on a different day. But, okay, shifting to the Senate. Now, so, you know, oh. <laughs> Parliament, is, Parliament is the House of Commons, it's the Senate as well. The, the Liberals not only have to manage the fact that they have a minority in the House of Commons, they have a mm-hmm. Senate that is a little less oh, predisposed to supporting mm-hmm. them than they were in the past. The Senate, there were a number of showdowns in the last Parliament between the Senate and the government, unprecedented in, in the modern era. Uh, an unprecedented number of uh, successful amendments in the last parliament as well. Now we have the Senate that's shifting. Mm-hmm. You know, you had the independent Senate group, which had uh, senators group, which had an absolute majority in the Senate. Now that's breaking apart. We're seeing some shift in the caucuses. Uh, do you think that the Senate might upset some of the liberal agenda or reshape it for the good? Maybe. I think that we can only say that the Senate is a work in progress. Yes. <laughs> I don't think... They'll agree, by the way. I don't think that it's possible to know yet how uh, how effective it will be as a so-called independent body. I think there are still um, concerns, certainly among um, the opposition parties, that even though the Trudeau government has outsourced its appointment process to an advisory group and has brought in these so-called independents, that the opposition parties certainly perceive those 
actors as liberal-oriented actors, that they are, you know, quote-unquote progressives. And um, in fact, some have organized themselves under the independent group, but others have uh, tried to organize themselves under the uh, progressive label, um, previously named liberal senators, actually. Um, that, I think, has kind of flailed around and doesn't have uh, enough as part of its own body to, to warrant the various caucus research resources that the larger independent group has. We also saw the conservative senators kind of split apart and form something called the Canada Senate Group, uh, which is, you know, to a certain extent has a number of conservative senators in it, but it also had some people that people viewed as either liberal appointed or progressive senators. So, look, it's 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 a bit of a... a, a uh, move movable feast that mm -hmm. the, that body like all the players are shifting around, you know. Sure, they all think that they're um, going to do a, a job of casting sober second thought on legislation with integrity and with a view to helping Canadians, but I think there are political pressures at play, and we saw after. Andre Pratt, the former editor at uh, La Presse, who was, had been appointed under that independent process as a senator, he lasted three years. He was effective in um, committees. I watched him on a number of bills. Uh, he helped, um, I think, shepherd through some amendments to a couple of things. You know, I could see him working to, to affect good work, and yet he came away completely jaded and realized he didn't have this political skills mm -hmm. to manage that job. Uh, he, there's no question there's politics still at play. Um, well, I think, I, I think it's so, probably worse now than it was before, given that the you can't just follow your party in the House of Commons anymore. You've mm -hmm. got to navigate this whole new mm -hmm. body, which has several different layers, and, and you've got to navigate it, and then the House of mm -hmm. Commons to some mm -hmm. extent. Right? And, and for now, look, for now, there's enough institutional memory around that people still realize that we're not elected. Yeah. We still uh, ought to bow to the will of the elected House of Commons. That's the democratic thing to do. And what happens, though, several years down the road when, you know, even that institutional memory of, uh, of the fact that they owe their positions not to their own, you know, great CV and connections and, and integrity, but to an appointment, you know, that they're not elected, that nobody vested in them democratic power. Um, and not accountable. And not accountable. So, so, but, but they, but they feel that they've been appointed because they're such great senators. Right. Uh, and then they start really trying to thwart um, the will of an elected government, be it conservative or liberal. I mean, I think that, that it, that's why I say it's a work in progress. I mean, I think this is, it, it's an institution that, um, We'll, we'll see evolve, but uh, uh, I, I'm curious as to how it's going to go. If the conservative get government gets, if, if a conservative government gets back in, they will revert to partisan appointments. And so the experiment will stall. Will a future liberal government follow through on what Justin Trudeau did by kicking senators out of his caucus? Will another liberal leader see any merit in that? Or will it be deemed... 10 years, 15, 20 years down the road, a failed experiment. Because it is ultimately not an accountable body. It's only accountable to the prime minister who appoints it. Yeah, and it's funny. As, as I 
uh, cover the Senate a little bit last year, I wrote a couple of pieces, and I asked them about these questions. And you can tell that the leadership, are, they're still figuring this out too. They know at the moment that they shouldn't push too yes. far. Senator Wu, for instance, said to me, uh, we ping, but we don't ping pong. I mean, no, Senator Harder said that. <laughs> yes, Sorry, we yes. ping, but we don't ping pong. Um, you know, Senator Wu said, look, our, our job is not to defeat legislation because we're not elected. So they, they know yeah, this. They know uh, that. But so the the original concept, conception of the Senate prior to 1867 and up to was or, as a regional body, yeah. right? And that hence why we, in part, why we have senators appointed on the basis of region. Uh, that changed in part because of John A. Macdonald, in part because of history and so on. And it, then it became sort of partisan, less regional based. I think there's a potential that it goes back to a regional-based body, that cauc regional caucuses break out. And if something like that were to happen in this parliament, that could prove a problem could for the be liberals. Very, it could be also very interesting, right? It could be a place where some of the some some of the regional steam gets let off, but also addressed. Look, I'm which they sort of tried to do I'm, with with a, a number of pieces of legislation in the last parliament, for yeah. instance, the tanker on the ban pipelines, and the pipeline. on the tanker ban. Yeah, <laughs> you know, look, I'm not um, as cynical as some of my colleagues about the Senate because in my 21 years covering politics in Ottawa, I've seen the Senate do a better job on a bunch of tough pieces of legislation than the Commons ever did. I'll, I'll name two. Um, the uh, post-9-11 Anti-Terror Act, the first Anti-Terrorism Act, that was uh, tabled by the Chrétien Liberal government in the, wake, in the weeks, literally, the weeks after the Twin Towers fell in New York and the Pentagon was attacked. The Liberals brought in... Um, sweeping changes to our national security system that had unanimous support in the House of Commons because everybody was scared. Everybody was terrified. Where was this all going? We went to war with the U.S., with NATO in Afghanistan. Um, and it was a very scary time and a time when no MP, no elected MP would challenge the government on the civil liberties and civil rights violations that were inherent in the bill. And the Anti-Terror Act was studied by the Senate and the Senate Committee on, I believe it was Constitutional and Legal Affairs, they did a fantastic job on it. They did bring a few amendments that um, they killed, uh, uh, they brought in a sunset clause and a review, a five-year review, a couple of things. They didn't get a lot of what they'd wanted. They did a much closer examination of the legislation, but they set up a review process whereby in five years it was reviewed and then more amendments were made. And we've seen that piece of legislation evolve through the times when with distance we got a better perspective on what was going on and just what the violations were and the potential for it to harm people. And the other thing I would just throw in is on medical assistance in dying, um, I think the Senate also did a better job than the House of Commons on examining that bill. Uh, the Liberals brought in a piece of legislation that didn't fully align with the Supreme Court of Canada ruling that said you ought to allow assisted medi medical assistance in dying in a number of cases. And uh, it was the Senate that um, did a, I would say, more thorough, in-depth analysis of it, brought in the experts that the Commons didn't listen to. And uh, even now we're seeing the results of the bill that the Liberals pushed through. Mm -hmm. uh, play out in courts. We've had a Quebec court overturn it, declare it unconstitutional, just like the Supreme Court had said it would, you know, uh, the, along the lines of the Supreme Court said, yeah. along the lines, by the way, that the current justice minister, David Lametti, had argued initially, and um, when he was a backbencher, or not a backbencher, Parlsec. And uh, so we're going to see that change in this parliament. So, I mean, the, 
I am a, a tepid booster of, of the Senate and for some of the reasons you mentioned. I mean, I see the functions like testing constitutionality, mm-hmm. um, pushing the government to be specific in, in the bill rather than saying, leave it to us, we'll figure it out when we regulate mm-hmm. it on the department side, which is it. But also long-term study. I mean, when yes. you know, I, I talked to a bunch of senators who said, look, we can study things all we want. We can sort of set the agenda we don't have to answer to an electorate that says we're not ready to talk about assisted dying. We're not ready to talk about marijuana. We're not ready mm-hmm. to talk about X, Y, or Z. They can do that, and they do. Uh, one senator put it to me, a, a crutching appointee, as a matter of fact, you know, the first quality of an MP is to be elected, and the second quality of an MP is to be reelected. <laughs> and so that was the lens through, you might be able to guess which one, and that was the <laughs> lens through which, um, you know, he viewed MPs, and to some extent, I think that's fair. And yet the Senate doesn't have to worry about it. So I, I wonder if, though, that that will have an effect on on the legislation we see in this parliament. I hope it does for the better, because I do worry that in a minority parliament, when you're open for business, that can have some great cooperative effects. Mm-hmm. It can also have some transactional effects that maybe we don't mm-hmm. want. Yes, it can. Um, Pierre Trudeau, when he won his minority in 1972, uh, later said that it was actually liberating for him because it freed him up from having to tailor and trim back the progressive kinds of things he wanted to do because of the hawks in his caucus, right? So he found it a very productive time for his his own, you know, legacy purposes and right. looking back. Um, we'll see if that's the case here. You know, there's a big question, given that throne speech the other day and the tone of it, that no question it's the liberal government's platform. It's the Liberal Party's platform. They ran on it. They elected. They're setting out their mandate that they think they have. Um, But this does require a little bit of, uh, shall we say, um, reaching across the divide Mm -hmm. and not just putting water in your wine, but being genuinely sincere about trying to to work with the other parties. And we'll see if they have that capacity. Yeah, that's the thing that ultimately I'm watching the closest is is, is, can this prime minister and this cabinet effectively work with the other parties? Do, I mean, meaningfully, do they have it in them? I'm not convinced, and there, I don't think there was a ton of evidence in the last parliament that that was the case, that they could. Of course, they weren't required to, so they weren't mm-hmm. really tested That's on right. it very much. Uh, that'll be the test. And I, you know what? For the sake of the country, I hope that they can. Yeah, it's harder, I would say, now. You know, I did um, exit interviews with a bunch of MPs in June, and some of them had been around a long time. And to a person, man and woman, uh, they described sort of the real loneliness now uh, on the Hill and the lack of camaraderie and the lack of across the aisle friendships and relationships and how how that's missing. You know, Roger Kuzner told me this great story of when he was um, in opposition. He's a liberal, now retired MP. And when he was in opposition and Stephen Harper's government was in power in a minority position, um, <laughs> Kuzner had been, been good friends with Greg Thompson, who was from New Brunswick. He's now a minister in Blaine Higgs' government in New Brunswick. And Greg Thompson uh, and, and Roger Kuzner ended up working together uh, behind the scenes to correct, to save um, something called the Canada, I think it was the Summer Jobs Program. Was hmm. it the Canada Summer Jobs Program. <coughs> and um, Monty Solberg was the minister, and every day they were nailing uh, the, the the liberals nailing Monty Solberg on his elimination, what programs were going to be cut and whatever. And Kuzner, 
was getting all this, you know, information fed to him by his friends in Nova Scotia, but Thompson was hearing it in New Brunswick too. And Thompson would go over and encourage Cousin, yeah, yeah, keep it up, keep it up, you know, like you're doing, you're getting under their skin, it's working, it's working. And so there was this cross-partisan, both relationship and working partnership. And finally, he saw Harper one day look at Solberg. Solberg was on his feet and he looked at Harper, Harper looked at Solberg and then called him over after QP and he said, fix it. And it got done. Really? But, you know, that kind of camaraderie, goodwill, good faith, and attacking a policy, you know, or, or, or boosting a policy, moving a policy along for better or for worse, that's got to happen, but that's got to depend on everybody's goodwill. Yes, I agree entirely. And, and I, to that, I would add, I, if one shift, if we could have one shift in a mindset in the Commons, I wish it would be that MPs would recall that they are either government MPs or not government MPs. Um, rather than say part of the executive or not part of the executive, I should say. And if you're a backbencher liberal, you're not part of the, strictly speaking, the government. You're the government caucus, but not in the government. Um, your job is to hold them to account, even though you're in that party. I mean, that's a shift I would love to see. Says every campaigning party candidate, yes. party leader ever. Paul Martin said it. Paul Martin wrote it into his throne speech. Stephen Harper talked about empowering MPs, and they all do. They all do. Um, good luck to you. Yeah, I, I know. <laughs> I have a number of unrealistic <laughs> dreams. That is but one of them. Well, that brings us to time, sadly, because I could talk about this all day. And we spent so much time talking about policy and only a little bit talking about strategy. And I'm always so happy when that happens. Uh, so my thanks to you, Tonda oh, McCharles, for, having me. for, uh, for joining me today. To Mira Ahmad, as always, uh, for producing this. And to everyone listening at home, on the road, as, you, as we all join together in the same space-time continuum <laughs> on this spaceship, Earth. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again in the new year. 